One of the most fascinating and yet commonly unknown facts about the Bible is that there is a book in the Bible that doesn't even have the word God in it. It doesn't have the name of God in it, Yahweh, which is usually spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in our English Bibles. Imagine that, a book in the Bible that doesn't have the word God or the name of God in it. It's the book of Esther. But that doesn't mean that God is absent from its pages. The hand of the Lord is seen throughout the book, even though the word God never appears or the personal name of God never appears. Let's turn together to this interesting book of Hebrew Scripture, the book of Esther. Someone has well said that God is often behind the scenes but he moves all the scenes that he is behind. In my opinion, there is no other book in all the Bible that illustrates that truth more vividly or more clearly than the book of Esther. And isn't that interesting? A book without the name of God in it or even the word God in it, and yet it may be the clearest illustration of God working on behalf of his people found in anywhere else in Scripture. Please allow me to review the background of this book so we can understand and appreciate the significance of it and its message. You may remember, if you are familiar with Hebrew Scripture, that God was forced to judge His people, the Jewish people, because of their continued refusal to listen to Him. This judgment on the southern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Judah, came in the form of the Babylonians who swept down into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and carried away the Jewish people into captivity. They were in captivity for 70 years. But when when the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire, the Jewish people were released from captivity to return to their homeland of Judah, and some of them did, but not all. The first return involved almost 50,000 people who were led back to Jerusalem by a man named Zerubbabel. We were introduced to him in the book of Ezra. Then, 80 years later, another group went back to their homeland under the leadership of Ezra himself. But here's the interesting fact of history. The vast majority of the Jewish people did not return to their homeland. In fact, the total population of Jews in the land of Babylonia was probably somewhere between 2 and 3 million people. Most of them stayed put even after they were no longer forced to stay away from their homeland. Undoubtedly, even though they were a conquered people, they had carved out a life for themselves in that foreign land. We see this in the book of Nehemiah. You are probably familiar with the fact that Nehemiah eventually became cupbearer to the king. That's a very high position, very strategic, honored position. Nehemiah became cupbearer to the king, and that illustrates the fact that the Jews were able to establish themselves and carve out a life for themselves in this foreign land. The book of Ezra is about the Jews who returned to Judah and Jerusalem and what happened there. The book of Nehemiah is about the Jews who returned to Judah and Jerusalem and what happened there. But the book of Esther 
is about those who stayed back in the land they had been living in for 70 years. It was now their adopted home. The events of the book of Esther actually took place between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. I mentioned that when we went through the book of Ezra. Maybe you will remember that. Between those two chapters, between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra, there is a 58-year time gap. In that gap, the events of the book of Esther took place over a 10-year period. So with that as background, let's jump into this very exciting book. And I'm sure that many of you are familiar with it, but I want to encourage you to sort of read it again as if it were for the first time, because that is the way this book is to be read and appreciated. It is such a powerful story. No movie ever made by Hollywood can match the drama of this book. That's not an overstatement. Nothing can compare with the intrigue, the drama, the amazing twists and turn of events contained in this book. Here's how it opens. Esther chapter 1 verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. This display of the king's splendor lasted amazingly for six months, according to verse 4. And then it was capped off with a seven-day feast. On the last day of the feast, when the king was drunk, he gave a command, down in verse 11. The command was to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. It is likely from what unfolds that the king was going to make some kind of an indecent spectacle of the queen, so she refused to come. Verse 12 says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. When the king sought counsel from his supposed wise men as to what he should do, he was advised to divorce the queen. Down in verse 19, we read, If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered. By the way, that's a key phrase in this book. Laws made by the king were considered to be sort of divine statutes, divine laws. Therefore, they could never be altered. You don't mess with a decree from one of the gods. So that is why this statement is put in here. The king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all of his empire, for it is great. Uh, All wives will honor their husband, verse 20 says. So verse 19 says, here's what we advise, that you give this royal decree and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, 
so that it will not be altered. It cannot be altered. That was the, the tradition, the rule, the, the religion, whatever term you want to use here, so that it cannot be altered. That vasty shall come no, bo- no more before King Ahasuerus. And to let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. That was the advice the king received, and that is exactly what he did. He basically divorced Queen Vashti, sent her away, never to be able to come into his presence again, and it was an unalterable decree. But after a while, he began to regret it. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. The implication of that statement is that Ahasuerus wished he could undo what had happened, but he couldn't, because his decree had been according to the law of the Persians and the Medes, which meant it was unalterable. It could not be revoked. So instead of reversing his decision, he decided to look for another queen. All the beautiful young women of the kingdom were to be gathered together. Verse 4 says, Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now let's pause at this point. What we've seen so far has just been the history of a pagan king in his pagan kingdom. What does God have to do with any of this? Nothing. And yet everything. Certainly, God is not responsible for the king's prideful display of his glory, nor his drunkenness, nor his lewd idea involving Vashti, nor the divorce, nor the beauty contest that is about to take place. But remember, God is always working behind the scenes. He's always behind the scenes at work. We can't always see how, but rest assured, God is carrying out His plan. We begin to be introduced to it in the next few verses. Verse 5 says, in Shushan, and by the way, some of your translations may say Susa, uh, it's translation, a language issue. Uh, The citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter." Mordecai is going to be a key character in this drama that unfolds, so it's important that you remember him and his name. He, like Esther, was Jewish. It actually seems that the the wording is not clear, but it seems that he and Esther were cousins, actually. But he was a much older cousin, much like an uncle, functioned like an uncle in her life, actually even more like a dad in her life. Verse 8 says, So it was when the king's command... And decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave her beauty preparations, or readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. 
Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. That's a key statement. Esther did not tell the king that she was Jewish. Skip down to verse 16 of this chapter. It says, So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther won the beauty pageant and was crowned queen. Was this happenstance? Coincidental? Absolutely not. It was all in the sovereign works, workings of God as we are going to see. And so was the next event. Verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So what have we just read? Mordecai found out about an assassination plot against the king. He told Queen Esther about it. She told the king about it. It was investigated and found to be true, and the conspirators were hanged. But that's not all that happened. Don't miss the last phrase in verse 23. The incident was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. That will become extremely significant later on. Like a movie where you get a little hint or a little clue, something you're supposed to tuck away and not forget because it comes out later is very significant. In chapter 3, we're introduced to another major character in this drama. Chapter 3, verse 1, says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, and I'm going to skip the son of because I can't pronounce that name, and we'll go to the last part, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now this man was a fiend. He was a villain. This is the man who, when he's first introduced, if it were a play, you would hear the boos and the hisses, you know, undergirding uh, as he steps out onto the stage. He was an egomaniac who became very anti-Semitic, very anti-Jewish, hating the Jewish people. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. In other words, he answered their question, Why don't you bow down? And he basically said, Listen, as a faithful Jew, I will bow down to no one but God. And this infuriated Haman. Verse 5, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, Haman was filled with wrath. 
But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So Haman came up with his plan. And he cast a lot to determine when he should carry out his plan. The lot fell on the month of Adar, which was 11 months out, 11 months away. Again, that is extremely significant in the story. The lot didn't just happen to fall on that month by chance. God superintended the whole process and put this heinous event 11 months out in the future to give time for him to work out his plan. We'll see what his plan is as the book unfolds. But, but, but let me pause here to make a point. This happened, what we're reading about now, this happened four years after Esther had become queen. Four years. The reason I mention that is because if you're like me, then you are in a hurry to figure out what God is doing or why he does things the way he does them. We want to know, why is this happening? Why is this happening this way? What's going on here? But beloved, God's not in any hurry. Why did God place Esther in her position as queen? We're now about to find out. But it's four years later than many of us would have liked to have known. So let that be a lesson to us, beloved. God is on his own timetable, his own time schedule. Haman wanted to massacre the Jews no matter what he had to do to pull it off. So we read in verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. <clears throat> so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of, I can't say the name, uh, the enemy of the Jews, and the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. So things look bleak at this point. The decree was drafted and sent throughout the land. Verse 13 says, And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So this was to be carried out 11 months later. But God is still on the throne. He hasn't lost control. He's not surprised by any of this. He's not caught off guard. Don't forget, he's working behind the scenes. We still haven't seen his name anywhere in here. We haven't even seen the word God, but he's working. That brings us to chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth 
And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, it's easy for us to be non-emotional about this because it doesn't involve us. Furthermore, many of us know how this turns out because we've read the story before. But let's not be hard on these people for their response. Think about how you would feel if a national decree went out throughout the U.S. stating that 11 months from now, every Christian in the nation will be slaughtered. Man, woman, child, infant, all slaughtered. I dare say we would be emotional about that. You see, it's easy for us to be confident that God is in control and working when it's somebody else's problem. But when it involves us, it's very easy to be troubled. So we can identify with this response from Mordecai and the other Jews. They were understandably disturbed. So Mordecai encouraged Esther to approach the king about this matter. She encouraged him, said, you you need to go to the king. But there was a major, major problem. Here it is. It was against the law for the queen to go to the king unless the king summoned the queen. Verse 15 tells us, down in verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You've got to love this lady, Esther. She was willing to risk her life in an attempt to save the people of God. So she came up with a plan. She decided to have a banquet with the king and Haman present. And at the banquet, she was going to expose Haman and his insidious plan. But when she had the banquet, she lost her nerve to carry through. So she asked the king and Haman to come to another banquet the next night. And that whole ordeal was of the Lord also, because in between times, something happened that made it easier for Esther to carry through with her plan to uncover Haman's wickedness. Look at chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 9, which is, now catch this, this is after the first banquet, but before the second second banquet. Remember, first banquet, she loses her nerve, she can't carry through, so she schedules another one. So this is in between the two. Verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, He was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, "Besides Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king, to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, 
and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. The plot thickens. Things look worse for Mordecai. But keep in mind, God is always working behind the scenes. God works in amazing ways, especially since we can't even see them most of the time. Some of the things that happen in life seem so insignificant, so non-essential, so trivial, but later God may choose to use them in extraordinary ways. For example, what's the big deal about someone not being able to sleep at night? That happens all the time to a lot of people. Probably a lot of people in here. I know it does to me regularly. What's the big deal about that? Well, listen, when God is involved, it can be a big deal. And someone is about to have a sleepless night in the story, and it's a big deal. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. That night, that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. I don't know if he thought, man, you know, history's boring, so just come read it. Maybe it'll help me go to sleep. Or if he was so stuck on his, you know, uh, accomplishments that he wanted to, you know, be encouraged or whatever. But the Chronicles are brought. And verse 2 says, And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Remember that event back in chapter 2? It happened years before chapter 6. But now it's time for God to use it. Verse 3, we read, Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Can you believe the Lord's timing? This isn't just happenstance. This is the almighty, sovereign, providential God orchestrating things exactly the way he wants them to go. And let me remind you, beloved, that we still haven't read the word God. We still haven't seen the name Yahweh or Adonai, or El Shaddai, any of the things by which God is called. But rest assured, he's working behind the scenes. Verse 5, the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court, and the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For a man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on his head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one, uh, one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Isn't this great? Haman thinks the king is talking about him. So he really went all out by suggesting this lavish display. And then verse 10, 
Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And this is where you want a picture, not just words. You want to see Haman's face. You talk about eating crow. This is classic. And verse 11, So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through, through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. You've you got to love it. And Haman still has to go to another banquet that night. Do you think he felt like going to a banquet? I rather doubt it. But go he did. And Esther told the king about the plot. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before, the, before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. The word of the king mentioned here in verse 8 is the command to execute Haman. And guess what? The gallows was already built. It was built by Haman for Mordecai, but it's about to be used for Haman. Verse 10 tells us, chapter 7, verse 10, So they hanged Haman on the gallows, that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the king's wrath subsided. But there's still a major problem in the story. Maybe you've forgotten about it. The problem was this. The king had given a decree that a few months down the road, the Jews could be attacked, slaughtered, and all their possessions seized. And according to the law of Medes and the Persians, a king's decree was irrevocable. The king couldn't go back on it, even though now he wanted to. Now that he understood what was behind it, how he had been duped and how he had been misled. But he couldn't change it. This is similar to what happened to Daniel. You remember the story. The king was tricked into giving a decree that anyone who prayed to any other god but the king would be cast into the den of lions. Daniel one of the king's most trusted men, most faithful men, prayed anyway. And the king had to cast Daniel into the lion's den, even though the king didn't want to do it. And even as he did it, 
he uttered this prayer, this wish that Daniel's God would protect him. That's similar to the problem here in Esther. The king has given a decree that the Jews could be attacked, and the king cannot go back on his decree. So what's the solution? Chapter 8 tells us what the solution was. Another decree came from the king. Verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives. Basically form like a, an army, some type of defense to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. So this new decree allowed the Jews to prepare, to defend themselves, to do, make whatever kinds of preparations necessary, whatever kind of training, so they could defend themselves against the coming of attack. The king couldn't revoke his first decree, but he could give a new one, allowing the Jews to fight back. And that is exactly what happened. This new decree went out about eight months before the date the first decree was to be carried out. So that means it gave the Jews eight months to train, make preparations, acquire whatever they needed to defend themselves. And verse 13 tells us, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. How do you think the Jews felt now? Certainly a lot better. Verse 16 tells us, The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor, and in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the, joy, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. But they still had to fight a battle. They're still going to be attacked. Chapter 9 tells us about it. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overcome them or overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. That's what happened. Verse 5 tells us, Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Now at this point, the Jews had a right to take the spoil. But verses 10, 15, and 16 tell us that they chose not to take it. Look at verse 16, for example. Chapter 9, verse 16. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. You see, they didn't want what belonged to others. They didn't want other people's possessions. They, they simply wanted to protect their lives and protect their families and protect their possessions. That's all they wanted. And since God had granted them this victory... 
they rejoiced. Verse 19 of this chapter tells us, Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And this turned into a yearly holiday celebration. Verse 20 says, And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And by the way, the Jewish people still celebrate this holiday to this very day. On the 13th and 14th days of Adar, that's their, one of their months in their calendar, and it basically, it's the Jewish month that basically overlaps part of our February and March. So on the 13th and 14th days of Adar, the Jews celebrate their deliverance from Haman by celebrating the Feast of Purim. The Jewish people just celebrated this last month, February 24th, was the celebration of Purim. And that's where this celebration came from. Remember, Haman had cast a lot to determine when he was going to have the Jews slaughtered. The Assyrian word for lot is pure, P-U-R, not P-U-R-E, pure or pronounced poor. The plural form of that word in Hebrew, you add an im on the end, so it's purim, or purim, we say. That's where the holiday came from. It's a great, great story. But it's still not quite over. Chapter 10 gives us a little footnote. Look at chapter 10. It says, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea, now all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren." seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. God preserved his people. God protected his people. He wasn't going to let them be annihilated, and Mordecai knew that. He knew that one way or another God would protect and preserve his people. How do we know that Mordecai knew that? Well, back up to chapter 4 as we close. Go back to chapter 4. This is, this is probably the best known verse in the book of Esther. Where Mordecai says to Esther, chapter 4, verse 14. He says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. See, one way or another, God will preserve his people. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows? Here's the phrase. 
Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's the phrase for which the book of Esther is known. For such a time as this. The reason that is such a well-loved verse is because it emphasizes the fact that God is in sovereign control of everything. Nothing happens by chance. That's the theme of this book. God never loses control. He's always working. Often we don't understand what He is doing. Often we don't understand why He is doing what He is doing. Many times, frankly, we can't see Him doing anything. It appears to us that He's not doing anything. But, beloved, rest assured that God is in control. He's still on the throne. He's still sovereign. He's still at work. He cares. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Do you believe that? You should. God cares. He is working even when we can't see Him working. Remember, as Dr. Ironside said years ago, God is often behind the scenes, but He moves all the scenes that He is behind. And He can be trusted. He can be trusted even when you can't find His name anywhere. Even when you can't see the word God anywhere. He can be trusted. He's always at work. Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing story. As I said earlier in the message, no, no producer, director in Hollywood or anywhere else for that matter could ever come up with a story with so many amazing twists and turns and so many different plot lines and characters and such drama. And to think that all of this unfolded and all of this took place and yet we read in this book of Holy Scripture we read the story without ever encountering your name or even the Hebrew word Elohim, the word for God. It's an amazing reminder to us of your providential working on behalf of your people. And so, Father, I pray for each and every one of us gathered here. We're all at different places in life, different stages in life, different things going on in life, but for all of us, there have been times, or presently there are times, or certainly there will be times when we wonder, where is God? What is He doing? Why can't I see Him? This makes no sense. Is He seeing what is taking place? Those types of questions often fill our minds and fill our hearts. And when we go through such times, may we be encouraged by the book of Esther. May we be exhorted and challenged in our faith by the book of Esther. And may we never forget that even though it is your choice, your ways to often work behind the scenes, may we never forget that you move the scenes that you are behind. Teach us to trust you Teach us to hold fast, to do as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. It matters to him about you. And we see that 
gloriously illustrated in this tremendous story found in the book of Esther. May it encourage our hearts with truth of your character as we pray together in Jesus' precious and matchless name. Amen.